And you don't have a Bible. There are men coming up the aisles right now. They have Bibles. And if you just wave and get their attention, they'll be happy to get one into your hands. And, and it is always the greatest, not only to hear the Word of God, but to be able to read it with our own eyes. So take advantage of that. First Peter chapter 1. We'll be studying verses 7 through 12 this morning. But to, to establish a little bit of context, we'll pick things up in verse 6. So Peter writing by the Holy Spirit, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. I might have a few angels in the room tonight, this morning rather, so let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And what it uniquely does in a human life. Thank you for your voice and your revelation in your word. And we thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to turn to it today, knowing that your Holy Spirit is real and active in our lives and in this room. And we pray, Lord, that he would be active in taking these words off of these wonderful pages and the truths that are found in these words and Lord taking those truths and building them into our faith and in our relationship with you. We look to you for that work of your Holy Spirit. We pray for each man and woman that stands before you this morning, whatever their age that have not yet turned to your son for the forgiveness of their sins and the life that you have for them both now and forever that today something would click for them and today would be the day of their surrender and entering into the relationship with you that they've been created for. Lord, no man is able to accomplish any of these things that we have prayed. You must do it, and we ask that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The letter of 1 Peter was written to Christians who were in one of two conditions. Number one, they were either currently in the middle of a season of great, great, even life-threatening suffering in their life, or they were headed into such a season and right at the cusp of entering into that kind of difficulty. And he wrote this letter to them in order to provide them with really three very, very priceless things that we need to hear from God. 
when we're facing trials like that or in the middle of trials like that. And he wrote in order to, number one, encourage them. Number two, to bring perspective into their life. And then number three, in order to provide them with practical instruction. And we've been looking these last three weeks as we've begun the book, taking note of Peter's great encouragements to them in verses one through six. How the fact that we are born again unto a living hope. We possess everlasting life. That's a tremendous encouragement in any trial that we might find ourselves in, that we possess an inheritance in heaven and that we will one day inherit that inheritance, not because we're so faithful or so strong, but because God Almighty himself will keep us through this life and he will personally deliver us into the life that is to come. And each of these blessings that are ours, these encouragements, the wonderful thing about those blessings, as we've noticed, is that they're God-given. They're not world-given. They're not man-given. They're not self-earned. All of them are given to us by God. And because they are given to us by God, these blessings lie effectively out of the reach of any circumstance or any difficulty or trial that we will ever face in this world. In other words, these promises and these blessings are sure they are unchanging in our life. Now, in verses 7 through 12, Peter then moves on to this second area, the issue of perspective and how to maintain a godly perspective in the middle of great trial or great difficulty, even suffering. And one of the things that we're tempted to lose first uh, almost immediately in a great trial is perspective. We lose perspective quickly. And one of the problems with losing perspective when a great difficulty enters into our lives is that it's the world's worst time to lose perspective, and yet it's the time in which we're most prone to do so. And the reason it's the world's worst time to do so is because if we lose perspective in our trials, then we will uh, typically uh, only do things that will compound uh, the difficulty of the trial. When a healthy perspective is lost, uh, we tend to, uh, number one, lose hope. We tend to become dominated by fear related to this trial that's come into our life. Or we become very, very confused or very, very disoriented. And we start to make all kinds of wild decisions that have uh, very far-reaching effects, which then in turn uh, only make matters worse. Because usually they're pretty lousy decisions that we make once we've lost perspective. This is one of the reasons that counselors, and we assume godly counsel, counselors, but this is one of the reasons that Counselors are helpful at this kind of a time when we get into life and a great tragedy or great difficulty has occurred within our life. And one of the things that counselors offer to us is they can help bring perspective to our lives. Sometimes we get in the middle of a great trial and we think, oh, nobody, nobody's of any value to me unless they are either in a trial exactly like the one that I'm in or they've been in such a a trial in their life. And we think that that's a kind of precondition for being of any value to us. But just the fact that someone 
is outside of the battering that our mind is taking in a trial, our heart, our emotions are taking, our thinking is taking, uh, allows that person to do something valuable in our life. They are outside of the circumstance, and because they are and able to look at it from the outside, they can bring a perspective, again, assuming a godly perspective, that sometimes we can't produce for ourselves. And so there's no sense in rejecting someone just because, well, you know, they haven't been through what, what I have uh, been through. And so sometimes when somebody's on the outside looking in, their perspective is clear, their thinking is clear. Now, we have the greatest counselor in the whole world, in the Lord, the God of the Bible. He's a wonderful counselor, the Bible says, because he has the ability to completely understand. He's able to do what no one else is able to do. He can completely understand what we're feeling and going through in the middle of this trial and, and thinking in the middle of it. But then he also has the ability to stand off and see it with a clarity that we're not seeing at the moment. And so and he speaks through his scriptures and through the Holy Spirit to help us uh, regain perspective and maintain perspective. It's interesting, you know, living in this world and, uh, you know, I'm not it's the only world I've ever lived in. I'm not talking about Mork and Mindy or anything. You know. So but it's interesting, you know, you live in this world and you 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 hear a lot of things, you're exposed to a lot of things. And one of the things that's interesting to watch in the world is the conclusions that many people come to uh, regarding God because of the existence of suffering uh, in the world. And very often the existence of suffering in the world is used by atheists or agnostic as an argument against the existence uh, of God. And so usually we will hear this argument brought forth or uh, we'll read of it somewhere after some natural disaster has occurred. And if God existed, then why does this happen? Or following some particularly gruesome crime or, or murder, if God exists, then why uh, does something like this happen? And the argument is called the problem with evil. And it declares that the following three statements can't all be true at the same time. Statement number one, evil exists. And statement number two, God is omnipotent, that is, he's all-powerful. And statement number three, that God is all-loving. Because they claim if God can prevent evil but doesn't, then he isn't all-loving. And if God intends to prevent evil but he cannot, then he isn't all-powerful. And if God both intends to prevent evil and is capable of doing so, then how in the world can evil exist, which is their way of questioning the wisdom of God. And a number of years ago, there was a rabbi by the name of Harold Kushner who wrote of his struggle uh, concerning the problem of evil following the death of his son of a, uh, of a disease at a young age. And this Jewish rabbi uh, wrote a book that became a bestseller entitled When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And he took three great truths about God that we know from the scripture. Number one, that God is omnipotent, that he's all powerful. 
and as a result, he can prevent any action. Number two, that God is omniscient. He knows everything that is happening and everything about to happen. And number three, that God is omnibenevolent, that God is all loving, that he's good, that he's kind. And uh, Rabbi Kushner, he reasoned that only two of those truths can be true of God at any one time, but all three can't be true at once. In other words, if God knows of an impending disaster and is all loving and the disaster occurs, then it must mean that God is not all powerful, because if he were all powerful, he would have prevented the disaster. If God knows of an impending disaster, he reasoned and is all powerful, he has the power to prevent the disaster and he doesn't, then it must mean that he is not all loving. His third conclusion or uh, truth uh, that he laid out, only two of which he felt could be true, is if God has the power to prevent a disaster and is all loving and the disaster occurs, then it must reveal that God is not all knowing because surely if he knew the disaster was coming, he would have stopped it. Now, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Kushner decided to take the first of his three options because he felt that it reflected the most favorably upon God. And that is that God is all knowing and all loving, but he is not all powerful. And apparently this truth brought uh, some comfort to him in his situation, as well as uh, the millions of people that bought his book and read it. Now, the Bible's explanation for the problem of evil and suffering is a very, very simple one. And it's a very, very clear one. And it's called the fall, the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In other words, suffering is the result of sin in that ancient Garden of Eden. When God created uh, the world, it was good. You read uh, the, seven, the six days of creation, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And that was God's commentary on his creation. And so when God created the world, it was good. No sin, no death, no tragedy, no suffering, no tears. And then when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sin entered into the world for the first time, and as a result of this sin today, we have death, we have disease, we have pain, we have war, we have crime, we have family problems, we have interpersonal problems, we have tornadoes, we have earthquakes, we have floods, we have tsunamis, we have economic meltdowns, we have Congress, we have, and so, and so forth. All of these things were introduced into the human condition. And the fact of the matter is, is that when we each of us was born into this world, we were born into a war zone. And so if you want to know why bad things happen to good people, this is the explanation of God. And that is the fall of man. And thus to blame God for all of the tragedies in life that are as a result of man's sin and a result of man's rebellion against God. And that goes on all the time. How could God? How could God? How could God? How could God? It's the ultimate in blame shifting. It is to move responsibility away from where it lies upon Adam and Eve and then consequently upon us and then to move it uh, to God. 
Thankfully, the Bible also teaches not only the fall of man and that record, historical record, but the Bible also teaches that one day God is going to replace this fallen world and this fallen universe with a new heavens and a new earth, a heavens and an earth completely untainted by sin, untainted by the fall of man, and in the words of Peter in his second epistle, wherein righteousness dwells. There'll be no more uh, uh, affected by sin or the existence of sin. And Peter goes into that in some length, and I think beautifully in 2 Peter chapter 3, which you can read another time. The event of the creation of a new heaven and a new earth in God's timing will openly demonstrate the three great truths about God that some people think are contradictory, that he is all-knowing, that he is all-powerful, and that he is all-loving. But that demonstration, the creation of a new heaven and a new earth, that is coming in God's timing. It is not coming in our timing. We are in the middle of something that isn't finished yet, but the finish is coming, and God is to be given time to finish what he is going to finish. Now, why in the world do I bring all of this kind of thing up on a Sunday morning? The reason I do is because many Christians lose perspective in the middle of a great trial. It's a great temptation. And the problem is, is that some Christians, when they lose perspective in the middle of a great trial, they come to the same conclusions about God as a result of the trial as the atheist comes to related to God. In other words, they feel like they have to make choices related to God. So they they remain confident in his love for them. But then they lose confidence in the fact that he's all powerful, because if he was all powerful, then why uh, wouldn't he bring an end to this trial? Or on the other end of the spectrum, they may, they remain absolutely confident in his power and his ability to bring their suffering to an end. But then if he doesn't, then they begin to doubt his love for him. And so in this passage of Scripture in First Peter, out of what I think is a beautiful pastoral heart of Peter toward all of us as Christians and what we face in this fallen world, Peter gives us three great revelations which are helpful in maintaining perspective in periods of suffering or great trial. The first thing he tells us in verse 6 is that we're not immune as Christians from life's problems or life's trials and sufferings. We're not immune simply because we're Christians. And you notice in verse 6 that the, Peter says that we can be grieved by various trials. And the word grieved is a very strong word. We can be deeply impacted and rocked by deep and difficult trials in our lives. They really can cause us great sorrow. And when we experience suffering in this world, it's important, I think, not to assume that God is the source of the trial. These uh, Christians that Peter is writing to here in First Peter, uh, God hasn't initiated the trial that they're in. God isn't behind the fact that they're being thrown to lions or being lit on fire while alive and, 
and, uh, and being torn apart by wild animals. The origin of this difficulty in trial was a Roman emperor by the name of Caesar Nero, who was clearly a very heavily demonized person. This is a trial that has its origin in the devil. It is true that no suffering enters into our lives as Christians except that God allows it. And we see that, of course, in the life of Job. But the Bible also teaches that it reigns on the just and on the unjust, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, there are things that happen to everyone in this fallen world, whether we are a Christian or whether we're not a Christian. Again, tornadoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, economic problems, family problems, health problems, war, crime, and so forth. We are not immune from these things and the suffering that they bring simply because we are Christians. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, he encapsulated it in noticing the universality of physical death. He wrote and said, all things come alike. To all one thing, speaking of death, happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good, the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices, that is to God and to him who does not sacrifice, ignores God altogether. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. Now. Realizing that we're not immune from life's trials simply because we're Christians removes the surprise factor from our lives when difficulty does come. If I enter into the Christian life with the expectation that somehow I'm going to be immune from all of the difficulties of the fallenness of this world, I'm bringing a wrong expectation into my Christian life. And to bring a wrong expectation into anything in life is to set myself up for disappointment. So then when tragedy and difficulty does come into my life as a Christian, all of a sudden my world is rocked because I've got a wrong expectation of what God's promises are in to us as Christians, this side of heaven, this side of, of glory. And very, very often that happens in many, many Christians' lives. They have the idea that because they love the Lord and they're walking with him, that suffering is not going to come their way. And then when it does come, it really shakes them more than it ought to because of a wrong expectation. Not because God hasn't forewarned them or us, but because they have a wrong expectation of the Christian life. The second thing that Peter addresses here for maintaining perspective is found in verse 7. And Peter speaks to us of the purpose behind these kind of trials in the life of a Christian. How it is that God will overwhelm or he will overrule any trial that comes into our lives in order to make it serve his excellent purposes within our lives and to accomplish his goals in our lives. The promise that is made here is very similar to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where Paul wrote and he said, and we know that all things work together for good 
to those who love God and are the called according to his purposes. Paul does not say that all things are good. They aren't good. What Paul does in terms of a sanctified boasting related to God is to declare that God is to take is able to take anything, even the worst things that are meted out to us in life as Christians. And he has resources and a love for us that's so great that he's able to overwhelm whatever comes into our life and work it together for good in our lives. He speaks of Peter does of three purposes for uh, trials in the life of a Christian there in, in verse 7. And we want to take note of them. And the first purpose that he lists is that they come to prove or to test the genuineness or the reality of our faith in God. So these trials come into our lives and they test just You know, it's a midterm exam or whatever. They test the genuineness of our commitment to the Lord. And when we continue to trust the Lord and walk with him through seasons of difficulty, uh, it reveals that we have a genuine faith in God and we're not fair weather uh, friends of God. And when that season of difficulty doesn't drive us away from the Lord or our faith in God, but it drives us deeper in our relationship with the Lord. It is an encouragement to us ourselves because it reveals our faith in him to be genuine. That's its own reward. I don't minimize suffering in this world. But every single one of us as a Christian is a complete miracle of God. Born again, entered into a personal relationship with God, drawn closer and closer to him. And then you watch months turn into years and years into decades and decades into a life. You see someone grow old in the things of the Lord. And the older you get, the more you look back and you realize how many things, hard things, the Lord takes us through. And the only explanation for it is not psychosomatic or we've got some kind of internal strength. The whole only explanation is that God has started something supernatural and very real in our lives that's true. And it's true on this side of heaven, and it will be true on the other side of heaven. It is a great encouragement to our faith and, and to us personally to continue to walk with the Lord through trials. And so when our, when our faith is tested and it simply affirms the fact that our faith is genuine, that, that alone can make a season of suffering uh, worthwhile. Someone has said that a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. And that is absolutely true. Jesus spoke in the in his public ministry. He gave the parable of the soils house. A sower went out to sow seed and some of the seed fell on the hard path and the birds came and ate it before 
uh, you know, couldn't penetrate the soil. Other seed fell on rocky soil. And uh, because the rocky soil would absorb the heat, the seed would germinate quickly. But when the sun would continue to beat and be strong, uh, the, because the rock wouldn't allow the, so, the roots of the, the grain to go down, uh, it, it would ultimately burn up and it would die. And then some seed fell among the thorns and some seed fell on good soil, bringing forth 30, 60 and 100 fold. And speaking of that second soil where the seed goes out and it's rocky and he's the son in the parable speaks of tribulation and persecution. And when that tribulation and persecution begins to uh, put its weight upon uh, that person and their faith, it it dies. And so Jesus recognized that many professing Christians, I don't say uh, uh, true Christians, or, but professing Christians, they have a false faith. And that's part of what he was bringing out there. And this will be revealed in the trials of life. The person who abandons his faith when Christianity brings persecution and suffering is simply proving that he really had no faith at all. It doesn't mean that great trials don't come into our lives and they, they can really rock us. They can really shake us. And there's a lot that we have to process with God and work our way through. I'm not saying that. But when a person abandons God because difficulty has come into their life, it only proves that they had no faith at all. And so when we faithfully endure, as I said, a trial, it encourages us individually. God already knows what's in us concerning the depth of our commitment to the Lord. I think it's also very important to realize that when God permits us as his children to go through the furnace, uh, as the old saying goes, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. Uh, he's very much in charge and very careful. He will, uh, the Bible says, never allow us to be taken into a temptation. He certainly won't bring us into any temptation or allow it. In, in which we do not have the faith to successfully navigate that particular temptation. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, he said to us as Christians, except it's common to man. He said, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear. So God promises no matter what trial we're in, is that he will either give us the grace to go through that trial or he will make a way of escape. And you say, man, you know, I've been through some trials with God where it's one nostril out of the water. All right, but you had one nostril out of the water. Sometimes it's like that. Genuine faith. And so the Lord gives us that kind of a promise. When he allows trials into our lives, it's always for the purpose of a test with the idea of approving our faith. The second uh, purpose that he uh, gives here for, uh, for uh, the uh, trials that he's speaking of here is that he uses trials to purify our faith. Do you believe that your faith needs to be purified? <laughs> I won't believe it for you, but I'll believe it for you because... I believe it about myself, and I sense you're a lot like me. 
So our faith is impure, this side of heaven. And so what are the impurities that God allows these trials to uh, burn off of our life? Anything that doesn't look like Christ. And he uses the image here of uh, gold. And in that ancient world, when somebody would work with gold, they would take the gold in its form and they would throw it into the crucible and put it over the fire and it would melt down. And all of the impurities would rise to the top of this molten gold and they would simply scrape off uh, those impurities. And how they knew, we have lots of different ways today to measure, you know, uh, pure gold and all. But in the ancient world, what they would do is they would remove impurities until the one that was doing the trying of that gold could look into the gold and see his image. And the point that Peter is making related to this is that God uh, allows these kind of trials to operate in our life. And then he again overwhelms them or overrules them in order to make our life more and more uh, like Christ. And so uh, to where as Jesus looks into our life, as our lives are being purified, he can then see himself just removing the dross of unbelief. Again, I think that Romans chapter eight, verse twenty eight. We know all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purposes probably should never be read independent of verse 29, which goes on to say what that good is. We say, all right, God works all things together for good. All right, I'm going to go home after the service and I'm going to have a brand new car in front of my brand new home in front of my brand new children. No, I'm just kidding. Whatever the thing that we think is going to. So we have all these ideas of what we think is good and the good that God is aiming at uh, through uh, working these things together for good. But the good is Christ's likeness. Uh, Paul wrote and he said in verse 29, for whom he foreknew, that is God, who he foreknew us. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The greatest thing that happens in our life, the thing that makes us the richest in life, the, nothing can happen in our life that can make us any richer than to be conformed into the image of Christ. No home, no this, no that, no material thing, no relationship, no anything. Nothing compares to how rich we become in the proportion that we are changed into the image of Christ, because that is life, how it was intended to be lived. And so God looks at these trials. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have compassion upon us while we're in them. He does. But he recognizes something outrageously priceless is being worked in our life as a result, because these trials remove from our lives everything that doesn't look like Christ. The third reason that he lists here is that these trials prepare us or they afford an abundant entrance on our part into heaven. And so this kind of faith being refined and this kind of Christ likeness and uh, in, in the uh, persevering faith in, in a Christian will mean an abundant, blessed entry 
into heaven at the revelation of Jesus, whether at the time of the rapture of the church or the time we go to be with him individually. There's going to be praise, honor, glory will be given by God to suffering saints for their faithfulness to him despite the suffering. It goes something like this where Jesus declared upon the entrance of this kind of a saint into heaven. He said, the Lord will say to this saint, well done. That's the praise. Good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you a ruler over many things. That's the honor. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's the glory. And so the, these trials that we go through are preparing us for that kind of an entrance into heaven. Fire only makes gold more pure and thus more valuable. And in the same way, trials only make our faith more pure and thus more valuable. And God wants us to know that. You know, the most, one of the most miserable things that happens when we find ourselves in the middle of a great suffering or great difficulty is, is if we begin to think or we're tempted to think or someone plants the thought that all of this is a waste. This is fruitless. We're just going through this. And nobody's in charge of this. This isn't doing anything uh, remotely good or great in my life. And God wants us to know that our sufferings aren't purposeless or they aren't fruitless. They are accomplishing something very, very uh, good. And that's good to know when we're suffering. Now, let me close by noticing three keys to that Peter gives us to successfully navigating especially difficult trials that we find ourselves in. You notice at the opening part of verse eight that he reminded them of their love for Jesus. And here you have the single greatest motivation a person can possess for successfully enduring and navigating a trial, being faithful to the Lord in trials, our love for Jesus. Look at the suffering that Peter went through as an apostle. Look at the suffering that Paul went through as an apostle. Look at the suffering in the New Testament. Look at the sufferings of church history down through the ages. Look at the suffering that Christians endure to this very hour in this room all around the world. And the single great characteristic of a person that endures that suffering is a love for God, a personal relationship with God in which the relationship means so much to them, a love for God that is so great that it's greater than the temptation that any trial can bring into our hearts to abandon him. And so the highest motivation for remaining faithful and obedient in the Christian life is this love. Again, as we mentioned last week, Paul writing to the church at Corinth, he said, for the love of Christ compels me. You want to know what makes me tick? You want to know what make, keeps me going? When you've been shipwrecked out on the ocean for three nights and you've been beaten and scourged and rejection and all this kind of stuff that he lists as he wrote to the church at Corinth. He said, I can't get over the fact that God loved me. 
And that's the kind of relationship he wanted to have with me. And I can't get over the fact that he sent his son to die on that cross to have a relationship with me. And I love him all the more for it. And there's nothing that can rise up against me in the course of this life all the way to the point of his death that can ever become greater than my awe over that. And the love that I feel toward him is a result of that. The greatest preparation that we can make in our lives for coming trials and difficulties is to go deeper in our personal relationship with the Lord. Sometimes, and it's a great temptation, and it happens all of the time. I don't say how many people it happens to, but it's common. Where Christians will know the Lord for months and for years and for even decades. And their life is just going so easy and smooth and everything's just mapping out the way that they thought it would. They met the right gal, they met the right guy, they met this, and then the children are married, and the children are in the and all, and it's just like the whole thing's just going like this. Or whatever scenario you want to put in, in front of you, career-wise this, all the whole thing. And the temptation is, at a time like that, is to just maintain some kind of a nominal relationship with God. All right, I got my life, it's going, it's happening and everything, and so I got a relationship with God. I wouldn't call it a deep relationship with God. I wouldn't say I know the Bible very well. I, I just got this thing, you know, that's going on between me and him. And then so much time is frittered away and wasted. Time that God knows we need to go deep, deep, deep into the Lord for trials that can sometimes surface in an instant in our lives or sometimes surface a little bit later in life. One of the saddest things you'll ever see as a Christian, and the reason that I mention this, is that how often, how often only God knows, often enough, here is a person who walks with the Lord for decades, but they never grow in that relationship with the Lord. And all of a sudden, there comes the phone call. Here comes the trial. Boom, the gigantic explosion in their life. And they find themselves now having to try and navigate one of the most difficult things that a person can face in life while at the same time scrambling to establish a relationship with God that they should have been establishing for years. And it's one of the hardest things to watch a Christian go through, and it's unnecessary. God is always gracious, and He's always faithful. And he will always bring that person through that difficulty. But what the person loses because of the frittered away time is they lose the peace and they lose the perspective that they would otherwise have if they were deep in the Lord. We should never stop growing in our relationship with the Lord. The greatest response to deep trial is to go deeper and deeper and deeper in our relationship with the Lord. So these trials hit, 
There isn't even a thought in our mind of abandoning the Lord or now I'm going to, you know, it's going to be the Lord and all of my plans and my activities and my this and that. And God gets back burnered. There is the when these things hit, it's a time to go deeper and deeper into the Lord and in the relationship with the Lord because we're going to need a deeper understanding of him than we've ever needed before. And the Bible says that if we draw nigh to God, he's always going to draw nigh to us. He's eager to do that. So the importance related to, to these trials, uh, to the, the reminder of the importance of a love for the Lord in, in navigating all of this. The second thing that he tells them there at the end of verse eight and, uh, and then in verse seven, he, in verse eight or nine, eight, nine, ten, you choose eleven, twelve, you just choose whichever one you want. In verse eight, he speaks about believing. In verse nine, he talks about faith. And essentially, he's calling on them to trust Christ with a joy filled faith, not only to get them through the trial and the difficulty, but that with a faith that recognizes that one day God is going to deliver us not only through the trials of this life, but into the glory of heaven itself and where faith isn't going to be needed anymore. Suffering isn't going to be anymore. And uh, and so to put our trust in him because he is trustworthy. And sometimes we just need to hear that in a time of trial. And then finally, number three. He tells them in essence in verses 10 through 12, we could talk two weeks in verses 10 through 12, and I don't want to. <laughs> so I just want to keep this moving a little bit. So understand I won't deal with it thoroughly, but I do want to bring one point out of it that has to do with this whole uh, deal of, of, of maintaining uh, perspective and how to successfully navigate difficult trials. And one of the things that he's telling us in those verses is to trust uh, God to do with our suffering what he did with Jesus's suffering. He speaks about the Old Testament prophets. God speaks through Isaiah. God speaks through David. God speaks through Daniel. Sometimes they spoke prophecies that were then recorded. Other times they wrote prophecies down on the inspiration of the scripture. The Old Testament prophets, they'd listen to what God was speaking through them or they would read the prophecies of others and they'd look at this picture of the Messiah in the Old Testament. And here's this incredible suffering. And you think about Daniel chapter 9 and in terms of prophetically uh, Psalm 22, Isaiah chapter 53, Psalm 16, and on and on and on it goes. And they look at this uh, prophetic portrait that's painted there and they see that incredible suffering that was going to come to the Messiah and yet somehow he was going to end up reigning over a, an eternal kingdom. And these things were uh, incompatible with one another. They didn't know how it could all work together. We look back on it clearly and we say it all works together because we know what they didn't know or could couldn't see as clearly as we can, and that was that it was speaking of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah, of Jesus. But the point is this. Peter's encouraging us to make Jesus our example of faith and our example of surrender in suffering. 
and to realize that if God can overrule and sanctify, make holy, the greatest crime in human history, the greatest atrocity in human history, the murder of the Son of God at the hands of both Jew and Gentile on the cross of Calvary, if God can take that great injustice and suffering and atrocity and turn that around and make it work for His purposes, He can take any difficulty or suffering in our life and do the same thing. And so we draw hope from the life of Christ related to our own lives. That he possesses the same love for us and the same power related to our lives. And we can be confident that he will do the same thing with our suffering. And so this morning, in these handful of verses, Peter gives us needed insights into suffering. Insights that are obviously necessary or they wouldn't be in the book. For maintaining perspective in the midst of difficult trial. We're to use it as a time to draw closer to God. Go deeper in our relationship with Him. We're to trust Him because He's trustworthy. And we're to be confident that He will do with our suffering what He did with Jesus' suffering. So there's the sermon. Some of it fairly academic, not in the sense of being not important. It's a little bit like being in a classroom this morning. But it's in the book. God knows we need to hear it. And some of us sit in the room here today. You say, that's balm to my wounds. God's word is restored in a huge way perspective in my life in the middle of what I'm in the middle of today and it's intended to do that but not all of us at once face that kind of suffering and so it's good to hear these things knowing that in a span of five minutes or sometime in the course of our life we can find ourselves in the middle of something where we're trying to catch our breath and get our bearings and to know this is a place we can turn into in the scriptures to regain and maintain perspective in the great messiness of this fallen world. If you sit here this morning and you're not a Christian, you say, I, listen, I just came here to get saved. <laughs> As I look at life, I agree with everything that you're saying. I'm getting beat up so crazy in my head, my mind. I'm concerned for my mental health, my heart, my life, my body, my everything. I'm about to become a casualty. How in the world do I deal with this in life? And for you, the answer is to come to Christ. Come to the rock that is higher than you, the stable place, the only stable place that can't be shaken in the fallenness of the world that we're in. And to begin a relationship with a God 
of the Bible. And he will bring all of this, this hope and perspective into your life and more this morning. God loves you. God has pity on us in this world. One day he will bring its current condition to an end and it will be replaced. And in the meantime, he understands like no one else understands. And he pities us like no one else can pity us or have compassion upon us. But he has authority and he has power and he has grace and strength that he wants to bring into your life as well. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after our service. And have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily and they'd love to pray with you. Confess your sin to the Lord, receive his forgiveness today and begin a personal relationship with him. And then all of this and more in terms of perspective and beauty and strength and a foundation will become yours in an instant. You say, I'm not in any trouble. Well, you will be. So do it now and go deep in your relationship with the Lord before it comes because it has a way of coming. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for the broad variety of subjects that you deal with in your word. You deal with hard things. You deal with real things that we face. And we're glad that you do that. And we thank you, Lord, for this passage. And we think about how this passage in the book of First Peter has been a run-to place for your saints now for thousands of years. And Lord, we're so thankful to be able to study it together this morning, to make it a better friend for some of us for whom this book is already a friend. And then, Lord, to introduce others entirely new to this book, to become a friend with your revelation here. And we pray that that would happen, Lord, as we spend the time in it both today and then beyond. Thank you for being both in our circumstances and outside of our circumstances, and thus able to bring a perspective that we so desperately need, Lord. Thank you for being our wonderful counselor, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.